Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Um, Daniel Jose Older is a New York Times bestselling author of so many things I can't and don't even want to list them all. And he's been nominated. <laughs> he's nominated and won so many awards. I can't and don't even want to list them all. <laughs> if you enough. want to learn more about that stuff, he's got a really great website, Daniel Jose Older. Um, is it .org or .net? It's .net. .net, .net yeah. Um, DanielHazeOlder.net. It's a really great website. Check it out if you want to learn more. Definitely, definitely, definitely check out the classes. Click the classes tab at the top. Um, Daniel's good at many things. And one of them is um, he's really great at instruction when it comes to the art and mechanics of storytelling. Um, really check that stuff out, guys. It's really helpful, especially for new aspiring young authors out there. Um, also, we still, we sort of just talked about this for a second. He's also still finding the good fight on social media, hellscapes like Twitter. <laughs> um, so definitely uh, find him on on all those the uh, same name and their uh, Twitter, all Instagram, all those different places, and join help him join the rebellion there. <laughs> but he's taking a short break from Star Wars uh, for the next hour, anyways, to, to from Star Wars to talk about his latest book. Rick Rowden presents Last Canto of the Dead, Outlaw Saints Number Two, which is two gods turned teenagers wage simultaneous battles in the Caribbean and Brooklyn in the sequel to Ballad and Dagger. Healer story creator Matteo Matisse and Chela Hidalgo. Are not just two teenagers in love, they're powerful gods in human form, powerful enough to have saved their Brooklyn diaspora community from the wrath of an ancient enemy, and to have raised their one sunken native island of San Madrigal from the sea. But soon they discover that other problems are far from over on the shores of San Madrigal. Two creature armies are battling for survival, and on the streets, I'm reading this on purpose, by the way, and with the two sides at each other's throats. But worst of all, a heartbreaking prophecy rips these two young lives apart, sending Mateo back to the city where cops are now patrolling the streets and keeping Shayla tethered on to the island where chaos and death lurk around every corner. As gods, their powers know no limits, but as teenagers separated, desperate, grieving, what will become of them and what will become of their people? Join their battle and witness their love in this thrilling conclusion of the epic saga that began with Ballad and Dagger. Holy shit, that's a long summary. Please welcome to the show, Daniel Hoselder. Hello, Daniel. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. That summary is way too long. And the reason why I, I read it on purpose, even though I knew it was long, obviously. Um, mm. I didn't realize this for the first book which has a pretty long summary but Shayla's not, not even mentioned in the in the summary in the first book isn't that weird did you you might you know that obviously but well, the first book yeah um I I don't know if I've read the summary I don't write the summary so yeah like, uh, no I know you don't write the authors that's yeah, my, yeah. one thing maybe people don't know is authors rarely 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 write the summaries right. um usually they have copy do that right but uh Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's Mateo's book, and this is really like Mateo and Shayla's book. So. No, but she's on the cover. She's on the cover of the first book, too. <laughs> she's yeah. on the cover. Put her in the blurb. Anyways, um, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. I think we always have a good chat every time you're on. And like I said, it, uh, it's fun to talk to you. And so many of these Star Wars authors do write other books and and entered and are primarily, you know, entered the publishing world as non-Star Wars authors, right? I mean, I don't even know. Is there a single author who's first book was a star wars book probably can't that's not even possible is it but uh um it could happen yeah i think yeah. it's happened but, has it um, happened I'm trying to think of one i can't even really think well some folks come in through publishing right? yeah like well i think like sometimes people edit and then they'll take on a book yeah so but usually yeah usually they find you because you have a good uh a backlog of or great backlog of, of books that that they like they like a somewhat known, yeah, commodity, don't they? And and uh, they're very precious with their precious. <laughs> so um, some of that just, is just um, functional, like, like because the the turnaround is so the turnaround bad. is quick on really on all IP too. Yeah, I've talked to other you know Marvels and di other Disney imprints and stuff. Yeah, the turnaround is very quick. 
it's, it's hard to learn on the job, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. So I love these, the, the, from a certain point of view books they do. It's like, it's like a recruiting class for future, uh, mm -hmm. now in this case, maybe high, in this case, definitely high Republic authors, but, um, I do want to, we'll, we'll have like a very, very quick star Wars chat, but it has nothing to do with the books. It's more, I want to talk about just your, your time at celebration there, but, um, yeah. Did I count right? Uh, is Last Canto your 20th book? Like not including novellas, shorts, and uh, a mountain of comic books? No, I think if we include novellas, it's the 19th. Is it? Okay, so I completely miscounted then. I, th I did a quick count, I, I thought, on... on, on uh... I think. That's how. I, that's what I got in my head. I could be wrong, but I, in my head, it's my 19th counting the two novellas. Okay, okay. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Amazing. And in, uh, what, uh, seven years, eight years? Yeah, something like that. Wow, amazing, amazing production. Um, congratulations. Um, I want to start too quickly. Um, how was? I don't know if you were father last time we talked. Probably not. Okay, how's fatherhood? <laughs> no, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. totally life changing, obviously, but like in ways that not only did I not totally, obviously, I didn't really go into it trying to like predict what it was going to be like, right? But you have mm -hmm. certain ideas for sure, just from the media and your friends and your whatever. And all those, some of them were true, some of them weren't, whatever, whatever. But like, also it's just life-changing in ways that not only like you can't see coming, but you can't even express them fully in language. Like it's just some other beyond thing that I couldn't even describe. And I I don't know how to describe it. And I love it for that. You know, as a writer, it's always like the best kind of humbling to come up on an experience that's really beyond words. And that's what fatherhood is. It's um I'm such I'm such a big process guy. How if if it has, how has it affected your writing process? Uh and you of know, course and of course your your wonderfully talented partner as well, uh an author. So how is that? you know um i've seen you know you post the odd pic sometimes where you know they're sort of like they're like on your lap or strapped to you and you're at the keyboard and yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i mean I, I would think like both the process but sort of with everything like every, everything i've done in my life has been like practice for like fatherhood <laughs> and also like there's no way to be prepared at all like in so many ways so but on the practice tip, like, you know, writing, you know, I got my start, you know, on the ambulance, writing in the back of the ambulance between calls. And then later, as my career was moving forward, writing while on tour and having to get words in on planes and taxis and hotel rooms, all that really did kind of help me depreciousify the process. Mm -hmm. you know, of course, ideally, we would have, you know, hours ahead of us and a desk and, you know, all the treats we want. But that's not the reality for a lot of people. And you have to figure out how you're going to write regardless of that reality being true or not. So I had already gotten into the mindset of like, all right, well, you know, I'm going to write when I can and get it in. And that's really something that comes into play as a father. Like your schedule is it's it's not just like erratic. It's insane. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't doesn't stop changing. You know, so it's not even like. Yeah, so so that's been a challenge, but also one that I feel like definitely I've, the world has prepared me for in a lot of ways. Uh, so I've become more of a night writer in some in some ways, and then in other ways not. You know, it just changes all the time. Like last week, I had to write, you know, into the overnights, and this week it's all been like daytime. So it's be, the ability to be flexible is so important. The ability to not be precious about you know when and where you write is so important and so hard. But like whoever you are, whether you're a parent or not, it comes in handy to be able to just throw some words at the page when you have moment. Well, I also too, you know, I don't have children, but I'm surrounded by them in my life. 
you yeah. know, every, every friend and, and I'm an, you know, I'm an uncle and um, clarity is, an, I would, might focus might become an issue because from what I understand, uh, sleep is not really a thing anymore <laughs> for the first little while. Um, yeah, how- it depends. It's just not predictable. Like there's, there's right. nights when you sleep well and there's nights when you don't, you know what I mean? But you can't guarantee it. And yeah. that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But so far, it's so good, and and everyone's happy and healthy. I hope. That's and, amazing. No, it's incredible. It's really the best thing that's ever happened to me. Amazing. Great that's to hear. Great to hear. Um, so celebration. Um, you don't don't tell me it's fun. I know it's fun. I've been to them. <laughs> uh, and I know you guys are treated like rock stars there. So, um, this was would have been your first celebration overseas, correct? Yeah. Yeah, because it's been the last one was would have been before or last shot. Um. Yeah, I know it's a great time. Of course, I know you guys, and I know you guys have a great time there. But give me something, um, um, something you experienced this time around that you know didn't make it into a blog or just part of the coverage or something. Like besides the panel, which I know are always fun and stuff. So was there something that really caught you off guard, like in a good way, or or uh, something that just sort of made the weekend for you? I mean, fun doesn't even begin to describe it. Just the yeah. thing, like it's. But I guess what really like keeps I keep coming back to in my own head is like, you know, I just I just don't take the excitement and the passion of the fandom for granted at all, mm-hmm. ever, or, the, or the the sheer amount of it. You know, I, I like one thing we've had consistently in the High Republic is passionate fans, and we've never lacked for that, and that's that's its own gift, and that's really the most important thing. I didn't know if we could continuously like fill huge halls of people, of passionate people, right? Like it's not like Twitter is not um, a good sample of the real world in the sense that like it's a it's a weird microcosm that doesn't necessarily translate, right? Like in terms mm-hmm. of numbers. So it's very hard to know. And that's really my main frame of reference for where the fandom is at. So it's very hard to know what actual what the actual numbers are looking like um, just based on like hanging out on Twitter, which is kind of what I do. So to see just this this hall of like this 3,500 capacity hall at capacity of people excited for what we're doing. And for that, and this is the thing I'm getting to, like for it to be over books and comics is what I think is so revelatory about the higher public. Like, I don't think people thought you could do that. Not in this realm, not in the IP realm, uh, not in the Star Wars realm. Like that is that is something different and something new in its own right. And like, I'm so proud to be part of that. Um, because it's so good for books, like that, that, like that, that, that we can generate the amount of excitement that a movie does or a show does is incredible. And it should be, you know, the norm. It should be like, of course, a book could do that, of course, because books are magic, but um, it hasn't been done, not like this, not to this degree. And obviously, there have been gigantic books, books, you know, much more popular than ours and all that, um, but in a different way and in a different realm. So for that to be happening in this space, which is so much largely, you know, just a TV uh, movies and game space like that is incredible. And I'm I'm still like taken aback by it, you know, and then and then lastly, and this was this was in all the blogs, but the cosplay meetup is just like it's just such a magical experience. Like I cannot tell you what it means to feel that you're literally walking around in this world surrounded by characters that you helped create in another world like it's it's otherworldly in a very literal way that like i i just never expected to experience that and i have very i'm very ambitious and i have very high expectations for like i have lots of high hopes and dreams and everything else and i still never really imagined myself just surrounded by characters that i was a part of their creation that was something beyond my imagination and that's saying a lot 
Yeah, that's the that's the unique thing too, especially about graphic novels and comic books, is that visual representation, yeah. right? Which allows yeah, yeah. Uh, besides the co- a book, of course, has a cover, but that then it's just then it's just typeface the rest of the way. Right. Um, right. So with you doing both, having that physical representation on on page, you know, beautiful artwork that you always seem to uh, they always seem to connect you with the just the right artists, I think. Um, but which 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 a lot not that these fans wouldn't be able to sort of like expound on just even a quick description and create beautiful cosplay but you're handing it to them too in a lot of ways by by doing the comic book stuff as well right so yeah. um it's really yeah that was one thing that was amazing as a public star wars publishing guy first and foremost that was amazing yeah. to me to see the amount of high republic cosplay i was just like that's really cool yeah Shout out to the to the way that they've been running this whole thing because even like we get concept art for characters that appear in books but not comics and, right right and then that gets released and that's right. so, I think it's that's part of why you know the way that they're treating it which is to say with so much respect and um, you know just boosting it in so many different ways but that's such an important part and I remember us discussing that back in the day I think they were probably planning to do it anyway but I specifically remember me saying. We need to have like art, even of characters that don't mm-hmm. appear in comics. Like we need to be able to, they need to be able to see mm-hmm. the characters from the books clearly, so that they can cosplay them, so that they can process them and make memes and fan art and everything else. Like we have to see them on the page. And they did that. It's funny. I was at an event, which I want to talk about here in a second, related to your non-Star Wars book. But um, sitting, this I was talking to someone next to me, and they were they were asking me because uh, they used to know they knew me from when I was at the Force.net. And um, they're like, you know, I haven't, they're like, haven't, they, they gave me the question. They were like, you know, I haven't really read a lot of Star Wars books. Where should I start? (laughs) Right. And I was like, oh God. Um, I was like, I said, I said, honestly, I mean, you can uh, go, go at it from a couple of different ways. Right. Obviously you could, if you want to do timeline, then I said, honestly, we have the high Republic is a gift because Mm. even though they are going to keep going back eventually to a certain degree, but I was like, the High Republic is a gift. I'm like, it's such it's such a wonderful entry point into this into this universe. I said, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're gonna, I said, if you're going to get into it and you're going to be serious and you're going to stick with it, you know, Phase One, High Republic, Phase One, and go. Um, and then I yeah. said, she, she's like, well, no, I'll probably just like because she reads so many other different types of books. She's, she said, no, I'll probably just sort of like kind of jump in and out, and if I have time, pick up a Star Wars book <laughs> and stuff. I was like, okay. So I just gave her sort of like some of my all-time favorites type of thing, like of course, you know, like Lost Stars and stuff like that. And I mentioned your yeah. name and Justina's work, and and uh, I'm like, there's just I said, here's here, I, uh, you know the um, Alexander's work I love so much too. The mm-hmm. um, the, yeah. big, the the Alphabet Squadron trilogy yeah. I thought was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And then I gave her some EU stuff. And anyways, but yeah, I'm like such a funny, weird. I just, I to be part of something for so long and then to like have, you know, to think of having to jump in it now, I, I just, I don't even know if my anxiety can handle it. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about something sort of that happened to me actually. Um, and uh, I think it's important, not, and now I'm going to leave out the details um, because it involves somebody else, but I wanted to sort of just get uh, your opinion on it. Not my situation specifically but how you would have handled something similar so i was you know i interviewed 99 percent, you know marginalized authors by 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 puck authors and uh one an author recently you know just called me on a question i asked and just said it was an unfair question and had to do with sort of like race relations and stuff like that um we talked it out and it really came down to like that might that wasn't my intention the way they took it yeah um it was more it was less a question more of just like a converse trying to get a conversation going on a certain subject which is like really delicate and and serious 
but they took it as an uh, as a question sort of an unfair question and so we kind of cleared that up and i said regardless of what my intention the the fault is mine because if it wasn't clear to you what i was trying to get after that's my fault regardless of my intention right that's my that's my problem Mm -hmm. and it made me think like that's that's something even though like to me ally is a verb only Mm -hmm. like i and i try to you know do as much as i can Mm -hmm. always but you know, I think we always there's always room for improvement. So I've been th- just been you know I've been thinking about it a lot the last couple of yeah. days and where where I can improve my dialogue, my communication when it comes to when you're dealing with certain sensitive uh, subjects with marginalized creators. Yeah. And my question for you is, mm-hmm. you know, you do you've been do- in this game for a long time now. You do a ton of media. There, have you ever run across a situation like that where you've gotten a, a question that you felt was inappropriate unfair or especially when dealing with a certain subject matter whether it was you know the history of of uh you know slavery in the u.s or or any or diaspora questions or anything anything involving race or anything like that has have you ever come across a question that you thought was unfair and if you did how did you handle it um the tricky question i'm sure i have (laughs) every time people ask me why diversity is important you know yeah uh, I'll be honest, like I bristle, you know, and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an unfair question. I don't think it's a terrible question. I don't, there's nothing inherently racist about it. And I think people ask it with the very clear and uh, understandable intention of opening up that door to have that conversation. Like there's, it's not a bad question, but it's a question that also inherently, oh, dogs. Yep. Uh, inherently takes like, aside without meaning to at the same time you right know, i think yeah like if, yep if um like if you have to ask that question which i know the interviewer doesn't actually have to i know they know the answer um but that was those, kind of the thing with my situation like, right like i wasn't looking for an answer because i knew the answer but i was trying to just like stir up some conversation yeah okay but steve here's the thing you yeah. interrupt yeah sorry no it's all right <laughs> but that's that's one of the things that happens right like yeah. you talk i was answering your question and then you cut in you know so it's like the thing with that question is like, you know, first of all, every every person of color has answered that question like 1500 times. Right. So there's that. And then B, it's like it's very one on one. It's almost like justify your experience right, or justify your existence or justify the work that, you know, you are like working so hard to do. Right. And like, I feel like it's self-evident. Like it, it, it does. I just don't think it's like asking, like, what, you know, why do we? why do white creators feel the need to put white people in everything? You know what I mean? Like, do you ever ask white people that question? Probably not. And I know that's because like, there's a specific answer that people are looking for, but it still stands that we end up having to sort of explain and justify ourselves, even if it's an opportunity to do that. And people in power, you know, don't like people, people don't ask straight creators. Like, why are you always writing straight characters? Why is it so important to write straight characters? Like, I know why they don't ask that. And I'm not necessarily saying they should. And I, and I don't think it's the same as like when people are like, why isn't there a white history? <laughs> That's obviously very different because they're making a, you know, a statement with that. Um, but what I'm saying is like creators of privilege don't have to justify their experience, their existence or the why they do what they do. And we're constantly being asked to do that. And I'm also like, you know, I've written about this. Like I wrote a whole series that I've written many essays about it and sometimes I just want to be like here's the essay you know what I mean like I know that's like kind of the lazy man's answer but you do get tired of repeating yourself sometimes yeah um I hear you and like I said this was this situation was um it certainly it wasn't that question it wasn't 
you know yeah no yeah <laughs> but um yeah yeah sure. um but you know it did sort of like definitely made me think about sort of like how i ask questions as opposed to yeah, yeah, as yeah, I said, yeah, I mean, that's sure. good that you're yeah. thinking that through. Like, that's yeah, that's, that's yeah, I yeah, and that's and I appreciated it. And, and you know, like, thank, yeah, this, thank this person for not just swallowing it and moving on, or you know what I mean, or carrying on Did with you their post day. the episode as it was with that with the argument. Uh, no discussion. They asked me, I, I asked if they want me to remove it, and they said yes. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, most and oh, mostly because, um, they ended up giving an answer which. They sort of didn't meet the moment, and so like the, when they thought about it after the fact, they're right. like, "This is how I would have answered it, right? If I if I hadn't been sort of caught off guard." <clears throat> yeah, that's tricky. You see, right? So they're just like, it, it, you know, it, it just it wasn't, it just didn't. They didn't feel comfortable with posting something that was wasn't in good faith. I guess basically would be the best yeah, way yeah, to yeah. put it. So, um, and I always leave it up to the the guest, right? I mean, I'll throw, I said, I'll throw the whole episode out if you want, <laughs> you know, I don't do this for me. I do this for you. Right. So, yeah. um, but they, uh, they were fine with just removing that part and really not because of the discussion we had around it, but because the answer they give again, looking back, wasn't uh, the answer they would have given had mm. they had, they hadn't have felt maybe, uh taken aback by what they thought was the question yeah so um well thank you for that yeah that was so that's and i'm and uh and, and again unless past i mean i don't know how many of hundreds and hundreds of shows um and either that's the first time it's happened and not to say yeah. it hasn't happened but the guest just never brought it to my attention or called me yeah, on it, right. right so um yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very happy they they brought it up, uh, and uh, this is one of those authors too where I've known for a while and who I consider a friend. So I think it might have been easier to have that dialogue maybe from from them. But yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, I just wanted to know if you've ever run into that situation and how you handled it, and uh, if you were just sort of like rolled your eyes and carried on, or <laughs> you know what I mean, or, really or, or you know, there's a lot of different situations. But yeah, I haven't had any that are egregious, like you know, that I could think of offhand. Uh, thank goodness. Yeah. Well, I would hope that would that would just be a dead stop at that point. I would imagine. But um, so anyways, thank you for talking about that. Um, something that I had I got to do last weekend, which was super fun, is that I went to a uh, Rick Rarid and Marco Shiro launch party. Oh, lovely! Yeah, the Sun and the Star. Um, so that was uh, obviously a ton of fun, and uh, two great people there, and and talented, and fun, and nice um talk to them after and it was super great one of the things they did at one point um so they do their son and the star stuff and then each one of them sort of talked about they did we did a big rick riordan presents section where oh, rick cool. where yeah rick talked about all the out and and soon to be released rick riordan presents stuff mm -hmm. he had some very nice things to say about your duology of course oh yep and uh it's funny because I just before he started doing that, I was talking to that person next to me who I mentioned earlier, and I was just like, "Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, of the Rick Riordan presents stuff." I'm like, he doesn't because he doesn't seem to have bad taste, and it's amazing when you see all of the authors together like that on the screen, right? Because right. it's easy to disassemble them like Gracie Kim and, and Rosie Brown and like in yourself and and uh, Kwame and all this stuff, but when you see them all like you know with covers and names and stuff on the big screen, it's like yeah. it's incredible. Um, the talent he's like, he's got a great, he's got great taste, him and his wife and uh editor. Um, what's talk about sort of just the experience of, of writing for that imprint? And uh, have you have you met Rick? Have you talked to him? What was the 
I met Rick in a signing line that was for one of my books that he waited in. <laughs> so that's the kind of amazing person that Rick Riordan is. He mm-hmm. waited in line at BookCon um, to get a signature from me, which, I, you know, uh, really is not something that a lot of authors do, <laughs> especially gigantic authors, you know, especially like weighted line. Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah. Like, yeah, I, yeah. honestly, like I've, I've cut lines, I'm sure <laughs> as a writer or, or just snuck around back or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was just, he's just such a true, uh, genuine and humble and kind person in every way. And, and a brave person, you know, and I think like the, the imprint is such a perfect example of that like the use of the use of his platform. I mean, speaking of allyship, right. Like that's a really great, example of like a a model I think of allyship is like you know people asking him to write certain books that he realizes are out of his range and then like instead of doing that bringing in a lot of folks to other folks who are more you know within like culturally connected to those stories um one thing I learned doing this project was that Shadow Shaver was actually my, my first young adult book was actually a moment in his journey towards creating the imprint because he brought it to his editor and was like, this is the kind of stuff that I you know, want more of in the world. And she was like, well, we should do an imprint then. <laughs> and like, that was a big part of that. And that's so uh, just such a huge honor to be part of the origin story of something that I respect so much. And then to get to take part in it as a writer too. I'd always wanted to do a book for them because I love what they're doing because of all the things I just said. And because Rick is Rick, and I was just uh, under different contracts for a long time when it first came out. And then I finally was freed up. So I sent them a proposal for what became Ballad and Dagger, but it was a middle grade at the time. And they were like, this is great, but we're we're about to tack YA. Do you want to do this as a YA? And I was like, oh, I, I really had to take a second, actually, because the story really was conceived as a middle grade story. And they're very different animals um in a lot of ways and and it transformed the book radically even though i hadn't written the book yet i had just written one chapter and an outline but um realizing that it just transformed the book and i but i got really excited about what it would become and that's how ballad and dagger became ballad and dagger did was it pitched as a duology uh, i think so yeah yeah okay um so i read the that summary way too quick just again to make a stupid point, but um, what uh, what's Last Canto of the Dead about? So, Ballad and Dagger is about this kid Matteo who's you know just trying to play piano in his little Brooklyn enclave and finds out he's connected to a healer god and he's in love with a chick who's connected to an assassin god and his community is going to war with itself about whether or not they should raise the mystical Caribbean island that they come from from the bottom of the ocean where it sank right after he was born and spiritual divine demonic shenanigans ensue and spoiler alert they raise the island at the very end and uh in book two uh Chela and Mateo are on this recently raised from the dead island and they end up part of the war to decide the future of their community basically I love the beginning of this book the second book it's oh, like, yeah, like they're, it's really sort of, yeah, like picking up right where we left off. Literally, uh, like, yeah, like it's, one and one. it's, it's sort of something that like I've read unofficially, like you're not supposed to do that in sequels. You're, you're supposed to either Who do a flash. That? I, I, that? I need to find that article because it was like listed like the rules of, of sequels. Um, it was, I, I, don't know, I, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know who makes these rules, but uh, um yeah, I I really really love the beginning because um 
uh, I feel like then we're a part of that with them, right? Because if you, if you do a time jump at that point, oh yeah, no. we, you you feel like oh I what did I miss? Like something must have happened in those four right. months, right? Like, no, yeah, I, knew, yeah. I knew as I was writing the ending of book one that it was going to pick up immediately. Right? Perfect. <laughs> yeah, right on. Um, so yeah, so this so the island Samadrill comes back up and um there's a so they make it to the island and then it presents a whole bunch of other things and even the summary says they're they're split up and and, and mateo's got to go back to brooklyn for reasons yeah. and cello stays on the island for reasons so yeah. they're, they're they're apart for a, a lot of this book um yeah. uh physically anyways they kind of find right. a sort of like a, a nice way to sort of call each other on, on a spiritual phone i guess we'll say but uh right. um so so they're never and they're always in each other's you know hearts and, and prayers and minds for sure but yeah they yeah. are apart for most of this book um so yeah you get this nice tandem narrative going what was what was the thought process behind that and sort of uh because obviously i mean it's not a spoiler to say they have to you, ha you have to you, you break them apart but then you know you have to manufacture a way to get them back together which yeah. we won't talk about but you know what was was that does that present i mean your star wars does a lot of tandem narrative so just talk about the decision to sort of break them up and and uh yeah i mean then, the time jump actually happens at the end of book one in a way because um there's the climactic battle of book one and then a, a little bit of time goes by before they actually head off so they've right, had some right. uh, off screen so to speak time together um, to really solidify what they've found with each other. And also, let's not forget, spoiler, they've known each other for centuries in a way. So they kind of right. have that little That's foundation, right. yeah. uh, which helps. But um, really what it was, I I've actually been writing multiple POVs since way before Star Wars. Um, both of my first two series have multiple POVs, and I, and I enjoy it so much. They both start, actually, both of those series, the Bone Street Roomba and Shadow Shaper, started with books with one POV, and then both of them grew immediately into books with multiple and I, I I love doing it. I think it's such a great and fun and interesting way to attack a story. And so I knew, and I, and Chayla was a really, um, she's such a key piece of book one, as you said, but also I found her to be, I really wanted to make sure that I got her right in book one and that I made her more than just a love interest, more than just a femme fatale, more than just a, you know, a hot girl that he was into. And and then by the end of it, I felt really good. Like I had done that. And to the point that I was like, she's such an interesting character and an interesting voice that she really needs to have her own section of book two. So that was clear to me pretty early on in the process of thinking through book two. And it's like, if you're going to do that, there better be a good reason for it story-wise too. And you're, they can't be together, right? <laughs> like they can, but it's like, it, you're really kind of like almost doing a disservice to having multiple POVs. If these two are just attached at the hip all everywhere they go, like what's the point, right? So it became pretty obvious early on too, that they would need to be split up. But also I wanted to tell the story of the island and what was happening. And I didn't want to leave Brooklyn behind because Brooklyn is such a I mean, it is book one. Book one is all Brooklyn. It's fundamental to um, the whole story. And this is a story about diaspora um, and, and the diaspora relationship to the homeland. And but especially the diaspora, the, just the experience and the existence of, you know, of being away. And, and sometimes like that's your whole life. Right. Like that's that's a reality. And then that becomes part of your culture is being a diaspora culture and community. And so all those things were on my mind and they're really fundamental to the story. So it was about Brooklyn, you know, getting a way to show Brooklyn and getting a way to show San Madrigal. And then the third wing of that, of course, is the past, you know, and being able to dip into the past and understand the lore of this world and the complex and war-torn history of this place 
and how much it matters in the present. And that's a you know, that's an ongoing theme. If you read anything else of mine and you have, um, that's always a, a story that I'm telling is how the past is present in the present, uh, whether it's through ghosts, whether it's through you know the the vile machinations of of colonialism. Or whether it's just through our memories um, and the way that we hold on to our lost loved ones, those are all ways that we that the past is still with us. You know, as they say, the past didn't go anywhere, right? And I just think that's so this is such a, a, a interesting and like and fun and also danger filled kind of question to explore with characters and with young people, um, and that's why it keeps popping up over and over in my work. I really like this idea of, so they're both dealing with fallout in a way. So Mateo goes back to Brooklyn. He has to deal, deal sort of, he's forced to in some ways to deal with things he maybe shouldn't have to, but either way of more recent events where Chela's on the island and has to deal with the fallout from things that happened, like you said, yeah. a long time ago. Right. Um, right. Like, so like it, she's accounting for the things their other selves had done so long ago, whereas Mateo was accounting for things they had done currently, right, exactly. in Brooklyn. So it's yeah. I love I love that play back and forth. And that's also interesting too, because um you use her side to really introduce some new characters in this mm -hmm. book. Um yes. Oh Dekan, the uh the hunter spirit. Amazing. I love that the concept with her I don't know if we should, if we can talk about you can, you can go into it. It's all right. <laughs> um I love the they're, so the hunter spirits are assigned to an initiate in this case, you know, a Tia Mimi uh, and Mimi. Um, yeah. And then, you know, for reasons, Mimi and, and her hunter spirit part ways, you know. Right. Um, right. And I love this. So Otakon becomes this without their initiate. It's their right. whole their whole purpose, right, is the initiate. And so all of a sudden she's found she's been left without a purpose. She's like rogue. rogue yeah. Rogue. And so yeah. she's had to redefine herself and find other other ways to contribute and and sort of like, you know, hang out and but but stay sharp for whatever, you know, whatever's going to happen next. And I really love that whole idea of Thank that you. concept of, of, you know, it's like I, I'm trying to think of something to compare it to where like you've been raised to do one thing. Right. And then that's taken from you. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I really love that. And that and that extends that veil kind of goes over, you know, Chella and Mateo as well, right? I mean, yeah. sort of raised to think one thing, but then that whole script gets flipped, right? So yeah, talk about this idea of like having the past come back to change things that are happening now. And that of course echoes real life all the time, right? I think so much of this story is about learning to tell your own story mm -hmm. by, by living it, not just by telling it, you know, mm. and that's what Chela and Mateo are both really reconciling with is that they are, you know, like all of us kind of enraptured in this world full of destiny and the idea of predestiny, whether that's based on, you know, class or race and all the different things that people throw at you as your destiny or, um, or actual destiny, like, because you're a God. Uh, these are all things that we have to maneuver around and and kind of uh, just understand and and move forward through um, and and not be ruled by you know and that's complex like that's a hard conversation to have with ourselves with our lives with the choices we make with the meaning of that and none of that is to say that these things are a wash right like they're still they're very real and that's the problem like they're not just like some made up fantasy stories a lot of them are very real and so you know like what's the conversation around uh, surviving in a world that has predetermined what your path is going to be? And how do you, you know, find your own path? Uh, because if you just flat out reject anything that you 
thought you were supposed to be, then you're still being controlled by it, right? And and all these pieces are this puzzle that I think we all have to figure out in our own way. And I think particularly young people are trying to figure that out. So, you know, in the book, it's it's very much about the the, the destinies that they're dealing with as, as these living gods and 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 them figuring out you know how can they how can they take that destiny into their own hand and and still have free will amidst that and do what they know they need to do um and i think that's an important story for this moment just because uh things can feel so gloomy you know like things are very dangerous right now in the world in so many different ways and it's just easy to be overwhelmed by a sense of doom in a sense that like we're just destined for like the trash pit you know and like uh, we're not. And, and and also there's just so much more to the story than um, all the bad things that are happening. And so much of that requires us to be very active in changing them. I wrote down the perfect line from this book to sort of, mm-hmm. sort of hitch up to what you just said. Mm-hmm. So it's the healing we need is the kind that demands we face the past to face the future, deal with yeah. all the ways we've broken ourselves and one another, take responsibility, move forward with all the compassion and ferocity that many fires of our history have forged. Um, reminds me of a line from a song years ago. It's like the things we never tried to disallow have come back to haunt us now. So yeah, right. it's, it's this idea. I love what you just said, right? Like it's it's easy to get caught up in the history uh, of things and use that as, uh, of course, inspiration is always a good thing, uh, but as a crutch, sometimes people use it as a reason not to move forward, mm-hmm. um, right? Because, well, it's been this way for so long. Why bother changing it now? Or, you know, you hear sort of sentiments like that all the time. Um, right. And one thing in one thing in the story that I really like is, you know, like we we know these kids, um, they're uh, immortal-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, but there is sort of like a way where um they can certainly get hurt, but they choose to keep fighting anyways. Yeah. 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 I, and I think uh, you know, young people don't actually have the luxury of just uh giving up to pessimism. Mm. that's a that's a luxury you know that's a privileged position to just be like well you know it's all going to hell anyway so let me just sit back and make popcorn while the world burns like (laughs) young people had to live here a lot longer than we're going to and they you know really have to make change and i think we have to help them you know mend the world that we helped break one of the things i like that you dealt with in this book talk about sort of dealing with fallout and uh, what we're just, what we've been just talking about here is dealing with sort of things that, and especially kids. Um, you you deal with in a very very straightforward way. Uh, Mateo coming to grips with having to take a life, mm. Um, mm. and I, I'm constantly you forget sometimes because you know you get into these stories and and you know unless you're constantly reminded of their age, whether it's saying oh high school like dropping in a high school reference or something. Um, you forget, you just forget how old they are sometimes. Right. Um, but then, but they're fucking kids, right? They're kids. And I love that you didn't shy away from that and him struggling with that through the whole story up until the end, you know, and still to this day, I'm sure wherever Mateo is, right. You know, uh, dealing with that. Cause that would be like, I can't imagine, I can't imagine, (laughs) you know, and I'm way older than Mateo. Uh, well, the, his, his, um, his human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah uh so thank you for that i thought that was really cool oh yeah yeah i mean i just think uh we deal with a lot of different kinds of trauma in in books and in life and you know i think books are it for uh helping provide a language you know for young people to understand 
their different forms of trauma. And that's not to say they don't have a language, but it's like to be in a deeper conversation with the world about their trauma. I think that's the gift of books. Uh, one of the gifts, one of the many gifts of books, because not just about their trauma, but also about their joys and their triumphs, you know, and their victories and their love. Um, because it can feel so lonely. I think, especially as teenagers and you're having these feelings for the first time, and maybe you don't have people to talk to, mm. uh, or maybe you do, but they're giving you like really negative messages or who knows what, you know? And so I think like for books, like it's, it's for us to sort of provide this, like this, um, this, this deeper conversation that, that lets the kids, lets the young people know that they are, they are tapped into the world, that they're not outside of the world. Um, no matter what happened to them and no matter what they did, like that there are stories that speak to that. And it might not speak directly, specifically to the exact situation, but it will speak in a way that will resonate, you know, and have truth in it. But that's what that's the power of myth. You know, the myth isn't about the specificity of every single situation. It's about these larger resonances, that, that these archetypes that move through us. Um, and at the same time, they come to life because of the details and the and the, the specifics that we add. And that's kind of the, the fundamental tension, I think, behind all myth making, because there's, there's this form of storytelling where people just get really vague and they think that it's going to make it universal, you know, but it, it just comes across as really boring a lot of the time because they're just trying to be they're trying to talk to everybody. And the weird upside down backwards truth of story is that the the more specific you get, the more people you're actually talking to. It's just, it's also just really, uh, it's just an honest way of storytelling, isn't it? Right. Because I mean, yeah. if they, if they didn't deal with these things in some way or even give it a, a second's thought, like, you know, it'd be like, I'd be calling bullshit. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. know, right. It's, yeah. Yeah. Even though, yes, a part of their, uh, a part of them is this ancient spirit, but there is also a very real tangible part of them that is a teenager living in Brooklyn and, and, you know, who it's, has to experience these things firsthand and and the fallout from that should be should be traumatic unless the person is psychopathic or something or uh something in nature where they're just not uh, unable to to experience or feel those emotions right i mean there's that moment that always cracks me up but it's also very serious you know and he's t he's talking to one of the henchmen of uh he's talking to tolo's like right hand woman who's clearly like a gangster and his mm -hmm. lived basically the modern pirate life in every way. And she mentions like, oh, you know, maybe you should talk to a therapist about this stuff. And he's yeah. like, you go to therapy? And she's like, do you know how many people I've killed? <laughs> and like, look, let's be honest. Like, it yeah. can take its toll. I mean, I think, look, I think things like that affect different people differently too. And yeah. that's important to acknowledge. And like, I think there are people that are going to, you know, have a different experience of that than, than Matteo did. Um, I think you see even in Shayla, like she has a very different experience and that's not, she's not cold or callous to it at all, but I think she's much more practical um, about having to survive and what that, you know, what that's caused. And, and I think it's still really hard for her, but it, it helps being the child of an, an actual assassin God, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I love that scene when he first gets back to Brooklyn and meets up with her. Uh, yeah. Chola's assistant and <laughs> they're standing in front of, which I won't say what, but um, yeah. it's a, uh, that's a great scene. Um, the one thing about Mateo, though, that we do that we do have in common is um, I also fold up my pants and put them away after I take them off. <laughs> I forgot he's like a kind of a yeah. Yeah. look. He just likes things in their place. I okay. I I, I, oh, I don't know why or where I got that from, but I always do that. Uh, always you know, the only teenager I know who does. That. <laughs> just, like, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good. My therapist asks me that all the time. Um, Chela is yeah so you know dealing with trauma and then again sort of her 
things she needs to experience and deal with is and again this comes back to the idea of they're just so great at just they just keep pushing forward it's like they don't it's so great and so honorable um but their her stuff is all legacy trauma because of you know her gift and and the way she's attached to the island she yeah. if they you know if you see if you see the island as a, as a living breathing thing with with memories which i think is exactly what you're 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 trying to tell us it is mm-hmm. um and she's a part of that so she's you know entered this when she enters her state um right. you know she sees uh, who knows how many years of 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 events um yeah. most of them not very good um you talk about that having to put her through all that while <laughs> Chella balances so many things in this um it's one thing to like be a healer and accept that like oh i came from the good the good one right that's great um you know her past is she's connected to again the, maybe the spirit that's not not so well liked and because when she enters her state she does see all these things that led ultimately led to the island's demise in the first place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah uh you know so much of her journey i think is about the hard choices that people have had to make throughout history um that we don't really understand unless we were there it's very easy to look backwards and kind of like make assumptions about what we would or wouldn't have done but i think chayla uh chayla's positioning has put her in the in the seat of a lot of really difficult choices that a lot of people wouldn't have known how to make and you know that's some of the thing that she carries um but i think her journey is is a, a freedom from all the over thinking about that it's towards a, a freedom from of from that you know where she really uh, allows herself to be exactly what she is and all the complexity of being both a creator and a destroyer. And, you know, that those two things really do coexist and not even coexist, but in fact are one um, within her. And I I loved the idea and I love the challenge of playing with this dual consciousness of her, you know, being the island and being the girl and being the God and all, and the two different gods that are one God, all those different pieces, you know, just really coming together to form a whole character um, of course, it was really hard and required like a lot of just, whew, I don't know, flexibility <laughs> on the page. Um, but that was that's who she is. And that's what needed to be true on the page is that she all those parts of her are true. And her journey was in har- finding harmony in all those pieces, uh, including her as someone who loves Mateo and like oh, what she's going to do with that uh, moving forward. So that was it's like it's almost like all these moving parts around her that she has to reconcile and and make peace with as she moves forward but, but the hardest part was that it is just painful uh mm-hmm. there's physically painful i think emotionally painful you know the, the moment i won't spoil it but deep in the book when she gets herself in in a, let's say stuck somewhere <laughs> and uh it's just like it, it's just such an intense scene that i knew was coming and was really hard to write and also I knew it was exactly right for the book. You know, I think most writers that I know anyway, we take the idea of violence and pain very, very seriously um, because you don't want to inflict it on the reader, but you also want to make clear what's happening and um, you want to be true to the experience of the characters and how you balance that out. That's the hardest part. You know, it's like, you're not trying to traumatize anybody and you're also um, not trying to sugarcoat anything. And that's a balancing act. That's a, there's a tension in, in that and, um, and finding the truth amidst all of that. So that was the challenge I knew I was facing going into this book, that it was going to be hard for these, for these kids. Um, And it was hard to write. It was one of the hardest books I've written. Um, 
and I went into it without a, an outline at all, which is the opposite of book one. Book one, I had outlines of my outlines, like rough drafts and several drafts of different outlines. This book, I just I just jumped in head first uh, with some, you know, some idea where it was going, but I had to sort of experience it as they did. And that was challenging. There's an interesting thing that occurs here in this story, in this book more so, this idea that, you know, there's the one line about they feared everything that Madrigal stood for. They were terrified of what it meant for the world, an uncolonized island, haven of resistance, outlaw state. So where, you know, where the island, it should be them against the world. There's so much infighting in this book. Yeah. Um, right. And it's, of course, it all comes down to like everything else does power usually. <laughs> or, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's talk, but that's, there's so much division and infighting. And we see so much of that, obviously, in real world that plays out all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, if if any one group had ever decided to come together and form a strong union, then I mean, geez, the layout of almost everything would look so different, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that's it exactly. I mean, people yeah. are complex, so society is complex and communities are complex. Um, it wouldn't have felt true if everyone was like, Yeah, let's do this together. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but I think that's also, you know, there's something to be said for aspirational. And I think like there there have been moments of history in in microcosmic forms where there have been, let's put it this way, islands of resistance, you know, are real. Yeah. And yep. that's a, a metaphor that's been with me, you know, since I've been an activist, um, just seeing these, these moments really of like people really getting together and people putting their, people putting their infighting aside and people really like uniting and, and how powerful that is when it happens. Um, and just how unstoppable it is when it does happen. And I think it's like, uh, again, another tension, another balance, balancing act, I think, of the writer is finding, you know, how to tell those stories, but not sugarcoat them, you know, but not just make them up and make them perfect and like really show the the bare bones struggling that people have to do internally and externally, I would say within themselves internally, within their groups internally and then externally, you know, to the world. But um, it's hard. It's a struggle. And I think depicting it any other way is a lie. But also, I think acting like it's impossible is a lie, because we have seen it. Um, it's just, it's just rare. And it's because it's so hard, you know, like, that's the that's the whole thing. But these these stories are, you know, the outlaw saint specifically is really about like looking at those moments in history and looking at those moments in the present. Um, and, and asking the question, like, how do we do this? Like, it, it's not about erasing ourselves and erasing our differences right and it's not about just being like well everything was terrible so let's just like pretend it was fine right it's like the opposite <laughs> it's literally the opposite like we have to face the past we have to face our wounds and we have to face the wounds that we have caused if we're going to move forward and in order to move forward because we are going to move forward whether we want to or not um in order to move forward in a way that's you know that's holistic and healthy and that's what Mateo and Chela's journeys are, is, is like you said, confronting the past head on, dealing with the ugly truths, you know, dealing with their elders, uh, especially book one, you know, so much about Mateo finding out his heroes are trash, you know, <laughs> and, like, and like dealing with that and like the heartbreak of like a hero, someone you really looked up to not being who you thought they were, wanted them to be and, and having to move past that. I just think that's a story, we, you know, we need to tell because it's so true particularly these days for so many people there's also like this idea of like this this sort of cyclical lesson that i feel like they have to learn each time because like there's a line about uh, imagine uh, it would be great to live in a world that loved us back right and wanted <laughs> us to that was cheering for us to 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 victory right. after, when sorry i'm screwing up the line I no, didn't it, no i didn't write it down but 
yeah. but it's like every generation needs to learn that lesson on their own, don't they? In a lot of ways, I mean, the parent you can impart as parents, you can impart that on them and tell them this stuff. But eventually, they're they're out in the real world and they're going to learn these lessons themselves the hard way, aren't they? Right. So, yeah. yeah, I love that idea in this book about about it being generational. And in reverse generational in a lot of ways, because and I won't say exactly how, but like Mateo has to sort of reverse teach some. He ends up being a teacher to an older generation, doesn't he? In in, in one or two instances. Yeah, and it was challenging and yeah. fun to bring in his parents. You know, yeah, like that was a, a new complication. Um, As an atheist, I, I appreciate. That, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Forgot that. Right, that his parents are t- total atheists. Yeah, yeah, like little not atheists and uh you know just the, those conversations those are like hard conversations uh between between generations and between spiritual people and atheists like oh there's just so much stuff and, and you know and science and spirit you know and, and i think ultimately it's what you know it's like they, they're not in they're not nearly as oppositional as they feel like they can be and they feel right. like they are. a lot right. of the weight around those conversations is very manufactured i think and um once you actually have the conversation, you find that out. Like you're like, oh, we actually have a lot of common ground, and the stuff that is different doesn't matter as much as it seems like it does before we talk it out. And uh, but you know that's really hard when it's your dad and he's and he's like being really stubborn, and you're trying to survive and like fight for the survival of your people. Yeah, ultimately, when it, if it comes, which it, assuming that it does come from a place of love and understanding, then it's yeah, you, know, you, you always know you're going to maybe arrive at the same point. Just through different different paths right but ultimately you know arrive at the same conclusion but um uh i want to get i want to get you out of here on this one it's not even a question i just thought it was a really funny line in your book <laughs> so i'm just gonna read it out of here and get you uh-huh. out of this one. Yeah, i just thought probably. it was really funny yeah yeah it's not a spoiler or anything so it's just uh-huh. so, it's, so the line is so in summary the santos and the muertos have to stay separate even though some santos were muertos once and no muertos were allowed at santo parties and no Santos are allowed at Muertos parties except the Santos who are. <laughs> I thought that was just a really funny one. The funniest part about that line is that's 100% true. That is exactly. <laughs> and I've said that, I've given that speech, you know, to, to people, like yeah. to explain stuff because it's exactly the situation. And like, it sounds so uh, complex and it is, but it's it's also <laughs> like, it's literally that. Like, like, if you want to break it down, that's a perfect breakdown of the relationship between Arishas, Santos and, and the dead in in the particular tradition that i practice in the, right. the, the book practice and <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad it was when i was writing it i was like this feels like such a deep cut but it had to be said because it's really important to the mythology of the book too and the lore of the story and what's happening but i was like oh god like i can't believe i'm explaining it you know you, you try not to explain too much as a writer but that was one thing where i was like on the and then on the plus side to your point it, it's funny <laughs> but it's, so it's like all right, we, we can justify its existence if like it really matters to the story and it's also something like hopefully funny then it, it's worth being there yeah oh it's incredibly it's just it's yeah it's that right perfect sort of sweet spot combination of like droll and but but right but, and but it but true informative yeah and, and historically or, or factually correct yeah um and that whole scene is just great too but um Daniel, uh, yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed this duology. Um, I, Thank you. I, I, I flew through them, and we didn't even talk about like the music aspect, which is great. Just like Mateo's state is so cool. His his system, uh, you know, of of magic is wonderful. I love it. Um, his his ability to um, sort of like see and hear 
just really the vibrations of the earth and postulate that and, and turn that into music or, or, you know, be able to at least retain it later on to turn it into music is such a cool thing. Um, that's a whole other, uh, yeah, that's a whole other discussion for sure. So, um, yeah, I thought it, I really enjoy this duology. Like I said, I, I do Rick Rorden's got great taste. So yeah, definitely. Well, thanks man. Thanks a lot. Okay, Daniel, we'll talk soon. <laughs>